All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Great guests as usual, Ken Kalimstein uh, from The Nation, uh, formerly, of course, of TYT. Um, uh, joining us now, uh, Ken, you got a story about how the military is dealing with uh, different kinds of tests, COVID tests, drug tests. Uh, tell us about the, well, what I would consider to be the insane um, double standard there. Yeah, folks in the Defense Department reached out to me because they were frustrated that um, a whole bunch of uh, basic training folks, as well as others, um, were, you know, going home for their holiday leave. And um, when they come back, they were going to get tested. But unfortunately, they're not going to be tested for COVID. They're going to be tested for drug use. And, uh, you know, that's not, you know, uncommon for the military to do that. But that contrast is really stark. And people are frustrated that it's like, wait, they have money to test, you know, to see if we smoke pot or something. But they don't have money to give us uh, these COVID tests. If you look at the um, health insurance system set up under the Defense Department, it's called TRICARE. Uh, they do cover COVID tests in certain cases, but they consider holiday leave, quote, personal travel. And so this is just, you know, emblematic of all the problems you have with private insurance. In this case, of course, it's the Defense Department's insurance plan, but they find all these ways to, you know, nickel and dime you and not cover certain things. And the effect of that, particularly with these uh, basic training folks, is these are young kids that don't have a whole lot of money. And, you know, the price of a test might be the difference between them, they're willing to take it or not. Um, and so people were telling me all these crazy stories about um, ways that they were trying to get around the state regulations. So, you know, if you've got a blue state, the governor says, you know, you've got to, you know, either come in uh, testing positive, not having some or whatever it may be. Uh, I was told that there are people in the military that are coaching them on how to land in a state adjacent to it on the airport so that they don't have to, you know, meet some of these requirements and then enter the state through a, you know, bordering state. All these crazy games to get around the fact that uh, the Defense Department is not willing to you know, just uh, pony up and pay for what, uh, you know, I think they, they probably reasonably should. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of components to that. Uh, there's drug testing, COVID testing, funding. So I, I, I'm going to start with drug testing. Um, they're still doing that. So, like, I, I get it that if you're going to go into battle, uh, they got to make sure you're not on meth. Um, although, if you've ever watched a movie about Vietnam. Uh, oh, God. Uh, they appeared to all be high. Like they would smoke pot <laughs> every night. And if you're about to get your head blown off the next day, or at least risk that, I don't think I'd stop them from smoking pot. But but in, in the modern world, I believe that, that uh, marijuana stays in your system for 40 days. So does that mean even when they go on breaks, like they can't ever smoke pot, even if it's legal in their state? Yeah, if you look at the article, I was given a memo about um, what the testing would be like. It was extremely strict. I mean, uh, these are, you know, uh, these urinalysis, they're going to look at it. And uh, they uh, had, you know, it was it was really like they were going to test 100 percent of people on it. And then the frustration wasn't so much with that they were doing that, because apparently uh, troops are pretty used to that kind of, uh, you know, strictness of the military. It's, it's that gulf between the concern about that, which, uh, you know, I mean, if you smoke pot a couple of times, I don't see how that necessarily you know, it, it has much bearing on your work. Then you compare that with their unwillingness to cover the COVID tests for people. I mean, to call holiday leave voluntary when you've been on this base for a year and you want to see your family for two days, maybe it's crazy, you know? And so it was the, it's the disjunct between those two things that was um, frustrating to people, not necessarily the military has always been really harsh about um, those, those types of things. Um, but uh, I mean, yeah, and it was a surprise to me because I was thinking the military is, oh, this is this great, you know, public health care option that we have for, for these folks um, that, you know, this is what we want. And then you look at it and it's certainly, you know, good in a lot of ways, but um, there, there are a lot of deficiencies and a lot of similarities between it and the way that these, 
you know, private uh, health insurance companies are, are run in terms of having a lot of fine print and, and looking like they're covering things. And on second blush, you, you realize, oh, actually, there are, there are carve outs for, for ways that they might not. Yeah. So first, just I'm, I'm going to get past it. I'm going to go to COVID. But it, it's the equivalent of having a beer. It's insane that you ask people to risk their lives and say, but no, you're not allowed to to relax for a second when you're on a break for a couple of days. Yeah, you're allowed to have a Coors Light, but you're not allowed to have uh, a, a joint. It's absurd. But let's let's go to COVID. Um, Ken, when, when the um, disease first broke out, there was a lot of talk about how, hey, don't worry, uh, everybody's going to be covered for free. Now, here we are, um, and it turns out, not exactly. And, and these troops don't make a lot of money. I mean, a lot of folks don't realize $740 billion defense bill, almost none of it goes to the troops. Uh, the incoming service members make about $19,000 a year. Uh, so how on God's green earth are they supposed to afford uh, COVID tests? Yeah, they end up not. And it doesn't just hurt them. It hurts the general general public, too. And that's why some of these folks reached out to me was because they're worried about a sort of, um, you know, uh, pandemic bomb going off, so to speak, uh, in terms of all these uh, soldiers going back home and then coming back at once, you know, going through an airport, which I assume is not a great place to be. And then um, coming back, and uh, my understanding is that they're they're kind of incentivized not to um, get tested. So if you look at on paper, the military says, um, you know, if you're showing symptoms, you have to tell us. And then kind of off the books, they're kind of like, um, you know, nudging them and saying, yeah, but you don't really want to worry too much about it. It'll be fine. And so my understanding, and I got some, um, you know, internal documents showing uh, that at least at one of these bases with the um, uh, basic training folks, that um, there was a really high incidence. I mean, there have been thousands of cases of it. This is just one base. We don't know about the other bases. And uh, unfortunately, we're probably not going to know because the Defense Department likes to you know, hide behind um, things like readiness. We don't want to tell you what's going on because that might hurt our troop readiness. And um, I don't know, perhaps there's an argument to that. But um, you know, when they've got all these clever ways of getting around the tests and restrictions and, and, and sort of you know, covering themselves uh, to sort of look like they're in compliance with things. And in reality, it's more just you know, we don't want to know if you've got, if you've got issues. Then, then unfortunately, that's something that um, not just hurts them, it's a threat to the general public as well when they when they head home on thing, uh, in, in cases like holiday leave. So in, in that base in Oklahoma, was it Fort Sill, 2,000 right. people got coronavirus? Yep, yep, that we know of. That's an internal report. And then if you look at what they're saying publicly, the numbers they cite seem a lot lower than that um, in what they've told uh, in interviews to local press there. And, you know, I would, um, I would make a heuristic assumption that maybe that's something that's happening with other bases too. Um, but yeah, in the case of still thousands of cases, multiple people have died. A uh, I believe that a, a, a teenage girl died um, who was related to, uh, you know, a child of one of the one of the people on the base. So this is a serious thing, and a lot of, you know, folks inside, at least at the rank and file level, um, they they are not happy with how this is being handled, even if the the commanders are 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 you know sort of being told what to do. Look, uh, Republicans and corporate Democrats always talk a big game about oh support the troops, support the troops. That's why we do give. A gazillion dollars to uh, uh, the defense contractors who coincidentally gave me a lot of money for my campaigns. Uh, but they actually don't give a damn about the troops. Folks forget they're inside barracks. So if you're living together inside a barrack, um, that's one of the worst situations you could have for coronavirus. The only thing worse is a sub. Like if you're on a submarine, you're on an aircraft carrier. And of course, there was a famous case of Captain Crozier uh, who, uh, you know, oh, so many people on his ship had coronavirus. He docked it, and they fired him. They never got him, brought him back. So they're 
it's it's their disregard for the health of the troops is malignant. Um, and and do, do you see anybody in Congress going, hey, wait, you know, because they're making a big deal right now, Ken, out of overriding Trump's veto uh, uh, of the defense bill. And so Trump is worried about his own Twitter account and Section 230 that has nothing to do with the defense bill. He's not concerned about the troops. But do you see anybody going, hey, wait a minute, guys, we're really going to charge the service members uh, to test them for coronavirus? That's that's insane. Uh, or no, nobody really cares. No, the story, I mean, the response from the general public seemed, you know, concerned. They, people seemed receptive. They were like, this is crazy. But I haven't seen anything from Congress in response to that. And not just that. I mean, you point out the, I mean, there's a bipartisan consensus when it comes to defense spending. Um, if you look at, um, you know, the uh, uh, spending that was passed a few weeks ago, uh, this was passed with overwhelming majorities in both chambers, among both, you know, the Republican senators and uh, the Democrats in the House. And then you compare that to something like the coronavirus bill, which is extremely popular in the sense that, um, you know, it's popular for people to want them to pass something, get us unemployment insurance, get us um, our checks. And then um, where's the urgency on that? It's completely different. I mean, it's a huge battle for that. On the other hand, the, I mean, I, I, I have a friend inside uh, Northrop Grumman, a, uh, a big defense contractor, and he sent me um, an internal memo showing how they were lobbying the government and kind of uh, gaming things so that defense contractors end up getting priority status in receiving these uh, coronavirus uh, uh, tests. Oh, just uh, totally, like literally sick. Right. Defense contractors who are, you know, in air-conditioned rooms in the U.S. Yeah, although the air conditioning could spread it too, but uh, <laughs> but they should take care of the troops first. Um, so uh, now today, Biden came out and said the Defense Department is not really cooperating with him on the transition. That's insane. That seems like a national security issue. Um, what's the latest on that, Ken? Yeah, that's one of the big untold stories of the last four, not just the last four years, but going back to Bush or maybe before that, is the extent to which Congress uh, has been systematically weakened and the executive has become more and more powerful to the point that the White House doesn't brief Congress. I know a lot of uh, you know congressional staffers, uh, particularly in the Homeland Security and Intelligence um, uh, committees, and they and and you know I I talked to most of these things. They're like we don't even get read into basic stuff that they are statutorily obligated to do so. And, um, you know, the only power they have at that point is subpoena power and things like that. And they do use that, but it's limited. I'm sort of sympathetic to Congress. They're, they're, the tools that they have at hand are limited. So you have an administration now, and Trump is not the first one. Bush is another good example of this, that really believes in the unitary executive. We used to hear about this a lot more when uh, Cheney and Bush were in office. Unitary executive theory. Barr is a huge proponent of this. He built his entire career creating a sort of uh, legal framework around this idea that the um, executive in, in the you know, US government and the constitution uh, is, is, is supreme and, and, and stands above the other um, branches, of of branches of government, which are supposed to be co-equal. Um, and so this is a good example of that. Um, of course, you know, Biden is going to be in the executive, but he's not really yet, he's president-elect. He's not getting read into routine briefings to the point that you have um, pretty centrist, some cases even conservatives who maybe you know, don't like Trump, but they're hardly uh, leftist by any means, saying this is a legitimate national security issue that uh, because of, you know, Trump's pettiness or whatever the reason is that they're not reading him into these things. Uh, you know, we have an incoming administration that's flying blind and isn't going to know, at, you know, as, as, they, as they come into the Oval Office, what what the heck is going on? I mean, it's crazy. And, and again, so, we've seen this with Bush, but it's to another 
this is a whole nother level now. So, Ken, do you know what's happening there? I mean, like, the, I, I can see why some uh, portions of the executive branch would s- still listen to, to Trump. Um, but the Defense Department, I mean, they're supposed to be serious people. Um, and we, we have our disagreements with them as progressives. But uh, is it like the Tatas of the world, the, these lunatics that are inside the Defense Department that's blocking Biden from getting the information? Do you know any other mechanics as to why this is happening? Yeah, what, I mean, there's a distinction between what's called career appointees and then um, political appointees. It's the politicals that are doing a lot of this stuff. You're seeing a lot of shadiness going on where Trump, for example, removed um, the NSA's general counsel. I've heard a few theories as to why that was, and they put in his own guy. There's a lot of speculation that um, he's interested in disclosing um, uh, signals, intercepts to uh, allies in Congress to try to make you know either Biden look bad or try to make Trump, try to exculpate Trump on the Russian investigation. Um, they uh, removed the, of course, Secretary of Defense, and then they put in a new um, chief of staff. The new sec, the acting sec staff, from my understanding, you know, isn't isn't disliked. He's he's seen as a relatively decent guy, but it's the chief of staff is an intensely partisan uh, sort of uh, MAGA Trump figure. And so, um, when you look at all this in the aggregate, um, you know, I don't know what's going on in Trump's head, but it sure looks like he's staffing these places so that they'll, um, you know, behave in a sort of political fashion consistent with his wishes. Uh, and not with what is a, you know, centrally long tradition of um, uh, working with the incoming administration, not because you like them, but because that's the only sane way to run a government in this situation. I mean, for uh, our country has an unusually long period between election and inauguration. And if you're not, um, you know, reading the uh, new administration into what's going on, they're at a distinct disadvantage in terms of all sorts of foreign policy uh, threats that are highly fluid in nature. Um, so, uh, I mean, this does seem to be something that's not just happening at the Defense Department. I mentioned um, NSA, which is a component of the Defense Department, but other agencies as well, uh, Justice, for instance. And so there's a lot of confusion between the guys that have been doing this their whole lives as career officials and then the politicals who seem to have radically different aims over the next several weeks. Well, look, it, it looks like the clown coup's pretty much over or almost over, but I mean, Ken, they were discussing martial law in the White House uh, about 10 days ago or so. Um, uh, Michael Flynn brought it up. Trump asked about it. They had a serious conversation about it. Uh, and that's using the military to, to basically take over the government. And Flynn suggested that the military would run a redo of the election, exactly what happens in third world uh, uh, dictatorships, right? Um, and so... Any sense of the reaction to that or, or like, was was there kind of a quiet rebellion or like, God, I hope not. Or or some of these career appointed people like, yeah, wouldn't that be great? No, the career appointed people are terrified. And I countless conservative types I talk to that are like Reagan Republicans all the way looking at this in just horror, at not just at the uh, you know dangers of what's going on in the near term, but also in our international reputation. I mean, as you said, we're going to be seen as a tin pot dictatorship because this is a characteristic of a tin pot dictatorship. It's not even sort of an analogy like it's, you know, that. So you mentioned Flynn. There's a lot of laughter about this kind of stuff. And there is there are comic elements. But this guy was the national security advisor. This guy has a very prominent role. He has a leadership role in the um, uh, National Security Council. This is an extremely high level and not just under Trump. I mean, you can laugh at that. He's a Trump guy, but he was the. um, uh, Defense. Uh, chief under Obama as well. This was an extraordinarily prominent figure that was getting all sorts of rave reviews in uh, the, the news media prior to the Trump administration. 
Um, so, you know, we can laugh at him now and the things that he says now, but um, he was someone that was taken seriously, solidly within the mainstream of democratic circles um, until, uh, until fairly recently. So I, I think all this stuff is, is, you know, something that I'm not going to lie. It, it is at times hard not to laugh at, but it's also something that's quite serious. And, you know, this is not Roger Stone. This is not some sort of, uh, uh, you know, enter entertainment kind of figure. Like he, he's had very high access to, you know, top secret information, uh, you know, ran the, um, had a big hand in special forces operations, things like that. I mean, this is not a, this is, if someone knows how to do a coup, I'm not saying that they're going to succeed in doing this. This is the kind of guy that would know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's scary overall that uh, there are high-level uh, military folks who are this nuts. I mean, Flynn is totally deranged uh, in, in every way. Tato is one of the top uh, officials in the um, uh, Defense Department now, and he's a full-blown lunatic. He should be locked up in an asylum. Um, he, he thinks Obama was a a uh, Manchurian candidate for Hamas, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And, and so, I mean, we're only a couple of people away from, a, you know, being a tin pot dictatorship. If a couple of generals said, if Mark Milley and a couple of other generals were as crazy as Flynn and Tata, yeah, it's, all of a sudden the country's over. Yeah, that's the danger of running these acting chiefs that don't get Senate confirmation. I mean, um, you know, we, you and I can criticize the Republican Senate all day and, and be right in doing so, in my opinion. Um, but at least having that level of um, oversight of, of who they're putting in is something. I mean, maybe it's gossamer thin, but at least that's some layer of insulation from just the White House being able to do whatever they want. But that's, it goes back to what I was saying before. That is not consistent with unitary executive. This is the culmination of decades of um, you know, hard work and uh, 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 sort of legal constructions to try to make it so that the president doesn't have to answer anyone, including his own Senate, when it's controlled by his own party. I mean, how many of these guys are appointed? I mean, we have an acting uh, 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 Defense Department secretary. I mean, these are extremely high-level positions to have guys that um, uh, haven't even passed muster with the president's own party. And, and, and that's another extremely concerning, I think, indication of the drift away from any sort of checks and balances on on the on the uh, on the White House. Yeah. So now uh, Trump's uh, continues to be at war with what he calls the Justice Department. He puts it in his scare quotes. Um, <laughs> he did that in a tweet just uh, the other day. Um, so I I'm curious, um, how pissed are people inside the Justice Department? Are they still mainly Republicans? So they're like, oh yeah, yeah, he's attacking us, but it's all fun and games, and yay MAGA. Or are they like, I mean? What in the world is going on here? I mean, I thought we were for law and order, and this guy's hates law and order. Yeah, um, it's, it reminds me a lot of the senior level military people that I talked to. Um, you know, these Justice Department folks are not liberals by necessarily by any stretch, and um, they're expressing shock and horror because this is an institution that um, you know, again, we can criticize its failings and imperfections all day, and I have uh, plenty of those criticisms, but they at least have the presumption. Of neutrality, there's and and many of the folks that go in there, they, they seem pretty sincere about that. They fail at it, and you know there are people like Barr that that do what they do. But by and large, I find at least they think that what they're doing is is they're trying to be neutral. If you look at something like the Department of Homeland Security, by comparison, let's compare their field agents with um, the Justice Department's agents. So you compare an FBI agent to a Border Patrol agent or an ICE agent. 
worlds of difference in terms of what they perceive their role in the society to be. What uh, The FBI tends to view their role as um, doing what is consistent with the Justice Department and the Constitution. And um, they really, just culturally talking to them, they, they pride themselves on, on not being political. It's the reverse in the Department of Homeland Security, who, uh, you know, Trump tapped to do all sorts of crazy things that the Justice Department, for all its failings, um, wasn't willing to, uh, you know, uh, pursue it with quite the tenacity that Homeland Security has. So, yeah, you're seeing a lot of horror within uh, justice because just culturally, uh, again, like I, you know, I'm the last person to say, oh, this august institution that is above the fray and everything. Clearly, they've done, you know, bad things and, and behaved in political ways in the past. But there's at least the expectation that they are not supposed to do that. And that doesn't exist uh, with Homeland Security quite as much. So, so yeah, what I'm seeing is, is a lot of people raising the red flags. I think it's kind of the point where, like you said, it's the clown coup where it's kind of like they've heaved a sigh of relief and they're just waiting for the guy to come in. But, um, but a, you know, a lot of consternation and, and anger um, because this is hurting them just as much as it's hurting the country. I mean, their credibility is, 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 is shot when you have people like Barr uh, and, and, and Trump using them to do and say what he wants them to do. Ken, we got about a minute left. Um, what was the reaction of the Justice Department to the pardons? Outrage. They're so angry about it. Um, and it's unclear, uh, at least from the reporting. I don't, I've asked around. It's been hard for me to find out why Barr left. Um, I think that is a big question. Why didn't he leave three weeks prior to Trump leaving? This, 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 I mean, this guy is like um, the apotheosis of a, of, a, of a loyal party guy, you know, that's going to do what the president says, going all the way back to George H.W. Bush. As I said, he's a unitary executive guy. What would cause him to leave? I don't know. One thing could be the pardons that are coming down the road. And um, what I'm hearing is just disgust, not just at the nature of them. I mean, I was just talking to um, an FBI agent who expressed um, fury at all the time he put into this case, um, in Easter, the Neister Square killings of uh, these poor civilians by um, Blackwater contractors. Uh, thousands of hours of work put into this. Uh, not just because it's his job, but because he genuinely believed we have to have a check on, uh, you know, how these private contractors are working, all blown away. And then, uh, according to him, um, this this ruins the sort of um, uh, uh, disincentive that exists for other contractors to then think, oh, gosh, well, those guys got prosecuted. Maybe I should maybe I should play things a little closer to the chest here. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, rage, confusion, sadness, all of the above. Yeah, it's funny, though, that people are surprised. Yeah, Trump's a mob boss, and he let all of his capos go. It's the most obvious thing in the world. I, I'm, I'm amused that they expected something different. But I'm also heartened that they expected something different. I, I like that they, that they... Yeah, it's a mix. They're kind of... They're, they're sort of indoctrinated. They really are true believers. But I guess, I mean, that's better than just being a cynic and not believing anything, which is what a yeah. lot of these politicals are like, you know. So, I mean, there's this SpongeBob quality where they're like, oh, golly, we're going to do. <laughs> we can sort of laugh at it. But, I mean, it's also sort of uh, I admire it in a way, you know. I mean, they do yeah. take it seriously, a lot of them. It, yeah, I totally agreed. A little naive, but uh, a little noble. Uh, right. So, right. Uh, and apparently that still exists after four years of damage by Somehow, Trump. Somehow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Ken Klippenstein, uh, reporter for The Nation. Everybody check him out there. Doing great stories as always. Thank you, Ken. Appreciate it. Great to talk to you.